Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I don't know that it's. I kind of pushed my way in. I don't know that it's. It was ever open. I've never had a door open for me in my life. I had to open it myself or push it through. Today's podcast is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. You've heard me for years talking about Roy. I've worked with him for a number of years. And trust me, you can count on Roy for a very low rate on your home loan. And you know what I love? There are no tricks, there's no nonsense, and there's no extra charges at the end. You talk about loyalty. Roy has been not only loyal to me, but all of the people that I've sent to him over the years, they say thank you. Roy will treat you like family. He does business the old-fashioned way. He wants to get to know you. He and his staff, they really are people, people. And I'm telling you something, folks. His service is top shelf. Just go to Roy'sUmbrella.com. That's Roy'sUmbrella.com. You'll be glad that you did. My guest today on the podcast, first ever voice on WFAN radio back in July 1st, 1987. While at the fan, she covered the Yanks. The Knicks, she co-hosted a daily midday sports talk show. In 2005, she joined the Yankees broadcast booth as a color commentator working alongside the great John Sterling. She's a member of the New York Sportscasters Hall of Fame. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Susan Waldman. Susan, how are you? I'm great. It's so good to hear your voice. I recognize that voice. You know, there are some announcers that you know and you hear over the years, and I just smiled as soon as you started talking. So thank you for having me. Hey, I really appreciate it. You know, when I look back at your career and everything that uh, you have accomplished, one word comes to my mind. Uh, well, one thing that, that jumps to my mind right away is perseverance. How would you define your career? If I asked you, Susan, look back at your career, you can only use one word. Do you have a word you would use? That's a good one. I like that. Perseverance, I can do it a little longer. I, I, I once told somebody, what somebody asked me in an interview, what would you like on your tombstone? And the first things I came up with were, she succeeded when she shouldn't have. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. And if you know, and you were around during those years when, um, you know, there were no women and, and anything goes and, and how you treated women. So you, you know that. So you just, you just keep going. You know, I don't like somebody telling me no for no reason. I want to back up and, and go back. When I grew up on Long Island, I was born in 1959, and I was blessed enough to see Mickey Mantle play at Yankee Stadium. And as a kid, I tell the story, when we used to go to bat day, you were heartbroken if you didn't get a bat with Mickey's signature on it. But I remember listening to Bill White, the Scooter, he was great, Frank Messer. 
So in the late 60s, 70s, when I'm listening to Yankee baseball on the radio, what was your life back then? What were your dreams at that period of your life? Oh, boy. Um, and, and I'm a little older than you. So I grew up in Boston, and I had my own season ticket to Fenway Park. Well, it really wasn't my season ticket, but my grandfather told me it was. Um, so I was seeing – I could literally reach out where I sitting with my grandfather and touch Ted Williams. Wow. And and that's that was Fenway Park back then. There was no one in the park. And we were right down by the Red Sox on deck circle. So from the age of three and four, I was like wandering around and putting my head into the dugout and stuff. And I was really cute back then. And so <laughs> I, I started to, you know, I knew Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams since the age of four. I mean, I knew them my whole life. I called Johnny Pesky Uncle Johnny till the day he died. But there was never any, I loved baseball. Then, I, you know, my dad took me to Celtics games. I learned my basketball listening to Red Auerbach. Um, Coach Red used to scream. And I learned basketball watching him coach a five-foot, which consisted of um, Cousy, Sharman, Russell, Heinsohn, and Ramsey. And that's how I learned basketball, because he screamed, and there was no one in the Boston Garden. You knew everyone in the place, same with Fenway Park. And in, in Boston, it became almost like family, and you just you just did that. The only sports hero I ever had was Ted Williams for a lot of reasons until the day he died. I remember as a little girl watching him, and the writers, a lot of the writers, and there was one particularly, that used to eviscerate him, and he never shot back, and he never fought back. He just got better. And I remembered that, and it's something I've lived with my, my whole life. I grew up, the first voices I ever heard were Kurt Gowdy and Bob Murphy. Sure. I grew up with Johnny Most in basketball. That's, you know, that's who I grew up with. So it was all a mess. But, of course, I was a girl. And I took ballet lessons, and I was always going to be on Broadway, and that's what I did. But I think the background is what uh, made it not easy. It was awful to, to transfer, but it was the only other thing I knew when I left theater was sports. I always wrote, I always was around it, but it was just, I just loved it because I never, you never thought of that. I never saw a girl anywhere, but I always knew things. I mean, my mother knew, my aunts knew sports. You know, Cardinal Cushing used to take the, the nuns to Fenway Park. They knew. Um, so I never knew it was something that I couldn't do. Because I always was immersed in it as an avocation, not a not a vocation. Because I could always sing, and I was always going to go to Broadway. That's fascinating. Because when I grew up, I listened to Marv Albert do the Knicks and the Rangers and the '69 playoff series between the Knicks and the Bullets, where Walt Frazier was going against Earl Monroe and Willis Reed was going against Wes Unseld. It was at that time I said, "That's what I want to do for a living." But you never had that thought in your head, right? Because that wasn't available. I mean, that was unheard of. You no, were told. No, no, you. No, you never thought. Right. You never thought of that. No, no, I was a girl. My mother made me stop playing softball when I was twelve. You know, that's uh, no. You just, you just didn't. But it was, you know, this is mid fifties right. when I was a little girl. Sure. And you just, you just never, you just never did. But it was never something that I was told I couldn't do. Because I was always at the games on Saturdays were Harvard football games, and I always went to Celtics, and, and I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to know sports. And it wasn't until I got into this business that I realized that <laughs> that I was evidently a moron because I was female. <laughs> well, I know in just reading uh, a lot of articles on you and listening to 
uh, your podcast with Mike Greenberg and others. I know how you feel about this topic, and I get it. You would love to get to a point where a female is hired for a, a high-ranking job in this profession and people not make a big deal out of it. And I, I hope we get there as well, too. When did you start seeing the stem, kind of the, 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 the tide of things change? When did the door open for you where maybe sports broadcasting was something you could do? I don't know that it's, I kind of pushed my way in. I don't know that it's, it was ever open. I've never had a door open for me in my life. I had to open it myself or push it through. I, you know, and I think I'm actually at the age, I know that the two generations below me, you know, the, the women that are out there now that are, that are young don't feel this way because they think anything is possible. And maybe that's the best thing of all is that now we're getting, we're, we've gotten to a point where a young woman thinks she can broadcast baseball and doesn't understand, you know, because their people were and they can do it. And a lot of them are quite good, but I don't, you know, it's still a big deal and it's still watching to see if you make a mistake. I've, I've used this a lot. Um, you know, if, if John Sterling says on the air, you know, George Steinbrenner, the, the owner of the Mets, they'll say, oh, he made a mistake. If Susan Waldman says it, she's an idiot. And that's, you know, that I don't think has ever changed. I think people are still waiting for women to make mistakes. I think that it's only going to really change with the people that are doing the hiring. I was so moved by a woman whom I have known now for 30 years, and that's Kim Ang who finally got, you know, the job of the first general manager in in major sports. Now, Kim Ang is probably now the most overqualified first-time GM in the history of sports. But it took Derek Jeter, who knew her 30 years ago or 25 years ago, to put her there. And that's what it's going to take. It's not just a woman crashing through. It's someone on the other end who's going to say, um, <laughs> "This is ridiculous. She's she's the best person for the for the job." Um, and that that has not changed. So I still think it's smashing through doors. I don't think doors are open for females at all. You grew up at the Boston Celtics games. At the Red Sox games, you're diehard fans of Boston. Uh, people, obviously, not only in the Northeast, they understand the rivalry, but people all over the country understand the rivalry between Boston and New York. And you end up working in 1987 at WFAN covering the Yankees and the Knicks and then later into the broadcast booth of the Yankees. For a little girl growing up in New England and being a Boston fan, was that was that a tough adjustment for you? Not so much in the last 25 years, but when I got here, you know, when I met Bucky Dent for the first time, who's now one of my dearest friends, I didn't know whether to smack him in the face or shake his hand. <laughs> I mean, those things, you know, unless, unless Ted Williams is coming back or Carl Fisk <laughs> is coming back, you know, my, my allegiance is someplace else now. I, I'll tell you, Grant, though, when I'm in Boston, and it's been a while now since, you know, COVID and everything, but when I walk into Fenway Park, it hasn't changed a lot inside and I'm walking in there with my grandfather and that's the only time it hits me and you know and the players are not the same now and I don't really know these players the way I did and you know and everybody else is retired I'll, you know, I'll tell you, you said I, I said that about Bucky Dead when I first met Reggie Jackson for the first time I might could feel my face get red with anger mm-hmm. and it, you know that doesn't change but those guys aren't there anymore and I've been in New York a really long time <laughs> a really long time so I think I've kind of morphed into into both and you know and, and New York is the place where you know, it was. I think it probably and was probably the easiest place to break to break into if you're a female because there's so many different 
facets of, of New York. It was hard, obviously, and there are still people who don't accept me and and, you know, I had some terrible times during this. But, you know, as it gets further and further away from, you know, Uncle Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams and, and Bobby Dorr and, and Carlton Fisk and, you know, the 67 Impossible Dream Team, you know, it's, it's very different now. You talk about Bucky Dent and that one-game playoff in 1978 with Ron Guidry on the mound. I've interviewed Goose Gossage a couple of times at the Celebrity Golf Tournament in Lake Tahoe, and a lot of people forget that he came in in the seventh inning of that game, and you, you just don't see that anymore. And he talked about... About the last out throwing he has who popped the ball up to Nettles and I never knew this story but he said that Nettles absolutely hated pop-ups he dreaded pop-ups yeah. <laughs> he tells the story on the last out I'm sure you've heard that more times than I have but I thought that was fascinating for him to kind of give us his view of coming in in the seventh inning and then having Yaz as the last out and you know obviously anyone that's a Red Sox fan anyone that's followed baseball the legend of Carl Yastrzemski I mean what a way to end a career yeah, and, and <laughs> well, and Carl Yastrzemski also made the last out in a few other things, like the 75 World Series. He had a, a history of that, yep. making the last out in yep. very big games. But the story with Nettles and, and Goose, and we, we travel on the same circuit, and I host a lot of these reunion things now, and these guys are like my dear buddies. And, and the story with Goose was that he came in, the three innings, but and, and Nettles went over to him as Yastrzemski's coming up. Now, Gossage was afraid of Yastrzemski. He really, because that, you know, he said, oh, my goodness. And Nettle says, ah, come on, you're going to pop him up. And so when he popped the ball up, Nettles yelled, I didn't mean hit it to me. <laughs> right, right. I know. That's what Gossage said on the interview. I almost fell off my chair when he said that. Yeah, Goose has some of the best stories in the history of the world. What you probably don't know is that uh, Gidry was um, hiding from George in that before that game, and George walked into that tiny little um, <laughs> clubhouse in Boston looking for looking for Gidry, and um, Gidry was asleep on the tr- underneath the trainer's table. He had the trainer Gene Monahan put some sheets over it, and he was on the bo- underneath the training table wow. on one of those little trays that go across <laughs> and he was sleeping and he was and George said I just want to wish him luck and, and Gene Monaghan said oh George I, I don't know where he is he's around here somewhere <laughs> oh that is beautiful you know to this day that's the best single season I've ever seen from a pitcher 25 and 3 ERA of 1.74 where do you rank that season yeah, that that was amazing, uh, and and this was you know it was a different it was a different era also. So um, and you look at Latin, get that was probably as as dominating a year as anyone that I've I've seen. I mean, you know, Roger Clemens had some pretty dominating. Pedro had some pretty dominating things, but those guys had a different different outlook at things. They would you know pitch pitch to the score more, and there's a different world back then. But Gidry, when he was at the top of his game, that was just you know amazing. And he always looked to me like he should still go out and do it at any time. And I'm really sorry about that elbow. He was still playing when he was at the end of his career when I joined the Yankees in, in 87. So I got to be around him for a couple of years and watch him turn other people into pitchers. He did for other pitchers what Sparky Lyle did for him and most notably Dave Rigetti. There are wonderful stories of, in, back in those days because it was, you know, you know how different a game it was. Sure. And it's just so many, so many different things that, 
that went on. And Ron Guidry is still another dear friend. He comes to spring training every year. And, um, you know, these are the people when you get to know them as, as human beings and what baseball meant to them and what they did. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm just so lucky to know them and have them as friends really are. Some of the nicest people I've ever met. Ron Guidry and Dave Rogetti right up there at the top. Susan, you mentioned a couple of moments ago George Steinbrenner. What did George mean to you in your career? Oh, boy. Well, I once put it this way, except for my mother and my grandfather, George Steinbrenner is the most important person in my life. And in 87, when I met him, I'm not quite sure what, what he saw, but I was, I, you know, I was aggressive little thing. And, and, every, and George was always around. And George would always make an entrance and make sure that people saw you. And, and I still didn't, you know, the, the, the beat writers were kind of an impressive group back then. And so you you would chase George down the corridor, and once he got in the elevator, you couldn't go in, and you had to stop. And so everyone would go away, and I would run up, this is 87, and I would run up the ramps in the old stadium because it went right to his office. And if I got to the top of the elevator and and he had not gone in the office yet, he'd talk to me. And that was how I first... Um, you know, met him. And then over the years, I, he didn't include me in things. And I went to Tampa to meet him because I demanded an interview. And in 88, he said to me, one of these days, Waltman, I'm going to make a statement about women in sports. You're it. And I hope you can take it. And I didn't know what he meant back then because I was just doing what I do. But that was the year before I went through death threats at the stadium and all kinds of things. George is the one who you know, I was also on the other end of those yelling, screaming things. But George really helped me. He made sure that, you know, if I was going to mess up on the air, he wanted a woman to do it. And he wanted to be the one to put him there. And that was who George was. He wanted to make a difference. He was very, he was not what everybody thinks. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. And he's as important to me as anybody in my life. One of the great stories the feud between George Steinbrenner and Yogi Berra that you helped facilitate an end to. How tragic mm-hmm. would have it been, seriously, if Yogi had never made it back to Yankee Stadium? For those that aren't familiar with that story, uh, refresh our memory. Well, George and Yogi, I see, I had never met Yogi Berra. I mean, isn't that amazing with all that? That is and amazing. Boston rivalry, and I had never met him because he was never at the stadium. I did, I was introduced to him. I sang at Mel Allen's funeral, and Phil Rizzuto, he was another beauty, and I adored him, and he introduced me to Yogi Berra. It was the first time I'd ever met him. And... um the story was back in 99, I guess it was, um, Yogi was going to open a museum and he, uh, and we were going to broadcast it. And the program director of FAN called me and said, Susan, you're going to host from six to nine. Um, Yogi's opening a new museum and we said we'd do it. He's going to, um, you know, have the 73 Mets and we're going to have all these people. And wouldn't it be great if you could get George and Yogi to make up on the air? Now, I know an awful lot of people had tried this. Uh, Stick Michael had tried for years, the late Arthur Richmond, who was one of George's closest friends and was around forever. He tried. Everybody tried, and they wouldn't do it. And one day, George had called me, and I said, well, I might as well try. And I said, George, George, I want to talk to you about Yogi. And he said, what's wrong? 
And he had just lost, Otto Graham was one of his best friends, and he had just passed. And I just said to myself, well, let's go for it. And I said, well, you know, I really think it's time, and I think that you and, and Yogi should make up, and I'm doing this show at Yogi's Museum, and I think we should do it then. And he started laughing, and he said, no, we'll do it in spring training. I said, no, it has to be done now. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe, let's see. So I didn't, I didn't know Yogi. I worked this out with Dale Berra, his son. And what Yogi wanted was for George to come to New Jersey and be in the museum. We were not allowed to tell anybody this was happening. And George would call and say, well, what does he want? I said, he wants you to apologize. He said, well, what does he want me to apologize for? I said, I don't know, George, you did it. And this went back and forth. And finally, George agreed, because I think after losing his buddy Otto Graham, I think he was afraid of, you know, people in his life not being around. And he agreed, actually, Grant, to fly from Florida to New Jersey. This wow. January, hmm. December, January. He, and it had to be there. We were not allowed to tell anybody. And he did. And he flew up that one day, and we and we're sitting in a museum, and I'm thinking, oh God, this better work. And I've never I've never talked to Yogi about this or anything. It was Dale and me, and we <laughs> we made the whole thing. And George arrives, and Yogi opens the door, and I'm watching, and Yogi says, "You're late." And I hear, no, I'm not. I am not late. (laughs) Anyway, they go in this room, and they're like, all of a sudden, voices are being raised, and they're yelling. And Carmen Vera, Yogi's wife, goes in the room, and then they come back out, and everything's fine, and so I've got a show. I mean, if this didn't work, I had set up Ted Williams called in, Joe Caragiola, Bill White, all these people (laughs) that were friends with both of them. And I got everybody to to call in, and I'm thinking, this better work, or I'm stuck with the New York Mets, of whom I knew nothing about. In 1973, I would have had three hours of, you know, Ed Charles and, 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 you know, people like that. They're lovely people, but I really didn't know a whole lot about the 73 Mets. So that, that worked, and that was that, and it was amazing. And then, there, of course, there was Yogi Day and, of course, the, the perfect game and at that game and Larson there and just uh, amazing. And then, and then Yogi became uh, a fixture. He was at the stadium all the time, all the time, just walking around. And how great was that? Do you know his grandchildren had never been to Yankee Stadium? Wow. Wow. You know what's amazing? You mentioned Mel Allen. I want to share a story with you. I went to college at Bowling Green in Ohio, and in 1978 – I got a press pass to go to the Yankee game in Cleveland. Yankees obviously right in the middle of a pennant race. Only a couple weeks left to go. And I was so excited. It was my first ever sporting event to cover with a press pass in baseball. And I got to the stadium in Cleveland three and a half hours before a weeknight game. And I get in there and there's nobody there. It's absolutely empty. There's no players on the field. There's no anything. And so I go and I sit in the Yankee dugout and I'm all by myself. And who comes out but Mel Allen. And Mel Allen sits about 10 feet, 15 feet away from me. And he looks at me, Susan, and he says, hi. And, you know, I grow up, I'm watching Mel and Fran Healy do the games. And Mel Allen, to me, was just a god. How about that? And, sure. and Mel, I got to tell you, Susan, Mel talked to me for 15 or 20 minutes, asked me where I was from, where I was at college, took a genuine interest in me. You knew Mel. You just said you spoke at his funeral. What was it like being around Mel Allen? Well, let, let me tell you something about Mel, because as you're, as you're talking about that, I was thinking to the first time I really ever talked to him. It was 
I guess it was 87. He was around a lot towards the end. And I remember this is the man that I used to take my little brother. We used to take the streetcar from out from where I lived in Newton down the family park so we could watch the Yankees get off the bus. And now I was probably 12, so my brother was eight. And we'd go down and we'd sit and we'd watch. And Mel Allen always in that coat and, you know, tie and, and that hat. And I just, and it's, and I, first time I saw him at Yankee Stadium, I, that's what I flashed back to. And it was a press conference, and I haven't thought of this in years, Grant, because he came up to me, he introduced himself, and he said, Young lady, you have an intrinsic love for this game, and don't let anybody stop you for what you're doing. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's all I can say is, well. Wow. And I knew all those stories, and I, hmm. you know, I actually sang at his funeral. We became, became really good friends, and he was wonderful. He could, he, boy, he could, he could talk, boy. Oh, yes. <laughs> he would, he yeah. would tell you everything. He was the loveliest yep. man, one of the loveliest men I've ever met. Well, for Mel Allen, at that age, in that time of my life, at the end of the conversation to say, Grant, I wish you the best of luck with your career and your dreams was one of the great moments, seriously, at that point of my life. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a God. I'm talking about Mel Allen. I mean, Mel Allen. I do. I do. <laughs> right. In all your, years, all your years in basketball, I'll tell you the same thing. You know what was one of the great compliments of my entire life? I grew up Johnny Most. Sure. I grew up with Johnny Most, and I know why he was there. Red said, I want you to come to New York and, I mean, come to Boston. He was in New York. You saw him, in the, heard him in New York. And he said, I want you to come to Boston. Boston and teach the people of Boston basketball. There are good good people and bad people. There are good guys and bad guys, and that's what we're going to be. And that's what he did. And the first time that Johnny Most walked into that I got to meet Johnny Most when I was doing pre and post game for the Knicks, it was early eighty seven. Patino was there, so it was eighty seven. And and I and Johnny Most said to me, Suze, tell me about your team." And I'm like, Johnny Most is asking me about the New York Knicks. <laughs> right. And the other person at that table was Bob Cousy. Mm. Wow. Like, can you imagine a little girl from Boston growing up and saying, you know, that was that it was so different back then. Tommy Heinsohn was there, too. Tommy Heinsohn was the first professional interview I ever did as an audition tape. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I just called him because you could back then. And I went to his house in Natick, and he did a, an interview with me, and that's, you know, it's amazing. But to walk in, and there's Johnny Moe saying, Suze, tell me about your team. Oh, sure, Bob. Boy, sure, sure, Johnny. Okay, Coos, I'll tell you all about the Knicks. I was like, can you, of course you can imagine, and you do imagine. You and I are like you and I are like two kids in a candy store because you and I could sit here and talk for hours and hours about stories like this. When I first got to Sacramento in 1987, I didn't start doing the Kings until 1988. But I'll never forget going to a restaurant for the first Kings luncheon with the media in 1987. And I walk into this restaurant and who is there? Bill Russell, who was coaching the Kings at the time, and his assistant was Willis Reed, who I idolized growing up in New York with the championship. And I know exactly what you mean. You know, once you're in this business for a while, you know, you, you, you don't really get caught up in when you meet someone famous. And you know, where, But boy, as a kid, when you grow up and you idolize people and you meet them for the first time and you're, you're in their presence and then you end up working with them, it's really difficult to explain. Just it's, it's hard to do. It is. It is absolutely is because you know my whole life it's you know Tommy Heinsohn and Bob Cousy and all the all those people that are so part and you know what you never 
And you shouldn't. You never outgrow that. No. You never outgrow that, no matter how professional, quote-unquote, you become and no matter what you do. And I learned very fast, and I know that you did too, that when you go into this business as a professional, you don't root for teams anymore. You root for people. Correct. And that's that's exactly right. There are people on all kinds of teams that I root for. There are plenty of times when I'm an opposing pitcher whom I happen to like a lot. I want him to do really, really well and then get taken out of the game and then they blow. <laughs> but right. how many times have you said that? You'd like this guy to score, you know, 50 sure. points, but, you know, have can't be at the end. You know, have, just twisted his ankle. Not badly, just enough so that you can <laughs> But you, you still root for, you still root for people. And that's, you know, and that's like, think part of it because to me grant and you know this if you ever lose that love and you ever become jaded you're just like everybody else and i don't think that that's what fans want to hear amen susan i say Derek jeter you say what (sighs) the perfect yankee the perfect person wow man was in new york for 20 years and never made a mistake with the media 20 years and everything when I, i i texted him when he gave Kimang the, the job, and I said, you just do everything right, don't you? And he, he texted back. He said, I knew she was going to be a star when I met her in 98. Hmm. He'll turn that team around. I'm telling you, he's doing it right. But I, I just, she's obviously one of my favorites. My, and my, my real favorite Yankee is his manager. My favorite Yankee of all time is Don Mattingly, who also is very different. But everybody, you know, is everybody wanted if you were a guy, you wanted him to be, you know, everybody loved him as a brother, as a friend, as a son, as a everything. Don Mattingly is one of the only couple of people that I never hear booed at Yankee Stadium. Don Mattingly is one of them. I was at the last regular season game at Yankee Stadium before they moved into their current facility. And I got to tell you, I miss that stadium so much. And, of course, you got to remember, I grew up, my dad had season tickets to both the Giants and the Jets. So I was at the old, old Yankee Stadium, and we had tickets in the bleachers for the Giants games on Sundays. But the the Yankees, before they moved into their current building, boy, I just miss that stadium so much. Yeah, I get it. I understand it was ancient, bathrooms, I get it. But, boy, Susan, I I miss that stadium so much. I really do. I I go to the new Yankee Stadium. I miss it every day. Yeah, I go to the new Yankee Stadium, and I'm kind of like, ah, it just doesn't do it for me. Do you know what? When we were at the old stadium, and I miss that building every day, there wasn't, you had to like go through the offices to get to the press box. And say, you were you were a family. I don't even know where half the offices are in Yankee Stadium. I'm never there. You're separated <laughs> right. from everybody. It's very, it's very, very different. I used to call when George was around, and really was George, until we moved into the, the new stadium. It was always, I always thought of the Yankees as the largest mom-and-pop store in the entire world. George made sure you had to know every name of every secretary. I knew every ticket taker's name. I knew every usher's name because that's how George ran it. And that's that whole part of that. And people were there forever, Mm. forever. And it's not like that in a lot of places anymore. Most places it's not. And I miss that stadium every day. I, it was a, it was like home to me, my second home. I knew every inch of that place. I loved it there. And I miss it a lot because, it's, yep. you know, it's a difference, Grant, in what sports is now and what it used to be, where you could reach out and touch to somebody and, and a player, very rarely would a player not give a kid an autograph, really rarely, and, or be there and talk to you. 
that whole thing has changed. And, you know, I understand the stadium. It's a beautiful place. John calls it a, a cathedral, which it, which it is. But I miss the old stadium every day and everything that it meant. I also miss the way the game was played, and now it's, uh, you know, again, I'm yeah. simplifying it. You either strike out or you hit a home run. For someone like yourself who grew up watching, you know, the Ted Williams of the worlds and moving on to New York, and do, how much do you miss the way baseball used to be played? I, I miss it a lot because the humanity is out of the game. It's not, um, it's strikeout or a home run, and I understand all the analytics, and information is good to use it, but to change the game, there's no action in this game. You know, they, they keep trying to shorten the games. I mean, what they're doing is like putting a Band-Aid on, on this giant gash. Um, and, you know, and people don't care what I think. I mean, I'm an old person now. They don't care what I think. But I think that people are, as the game is, keeps evolving into this, you know, taking humanity out of baseball is very different. This is not a 16-game season or an 18-game season or even an 82-game season. This is every single day. And the beauty about baseball was that I think everybody, everybody always played baseball and always thought, you know, if I didn't have to go and work in my father's bank, I would have been a great baseball player. You, you know you can't be the quarterback of the New England Patriots. You know that you can't be the starting center of the Sacramento Kings. You know that's not going to happen. But everybody thinks that they can play baseball. Everybody. And once you take it away from that human element, I think it's not good for the game at, at all. And, you know, maybe it'll evolve and, you know, and everything will just, it'll be like little Nintendo games. And that's pretty much what it's going to. But I miss that too. I miss the action. I miss laying down a bunt. I miss moving a, a runner over. You know, we talk about Ted Williams. I think his lifetime batting average is, what, 341? Just think of what he would have been if there was something called the sacrifice fly, which he did all the time to get runners in but it was an at bat just think about that it's amazing For years yep. yes when never you... mind the five years you lost in two different wars but i mean I, I think about that a lot that nobody thought anything of now back then giving yourself up you didn't get a sacrifice fly you were out it went on your average but the run came in when you are speaking to a group of people or you're out in public or whatever the case may be, and a young female comes up to you and says, I want to do what you do, or a female comes up to you and says, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be a broadcaster. How does that make you feel? Are you, I mean, I know, I, I know how you feel about the word pioneer and I get that, but you, you are a role model to so many young aspiring female broadcasters. That's got to make you feel amazing, Susan. Yeah, it does. I, I hope I hope that's true. And and then it goes back to the first time I ever really thought about that. And when I see nineteen ninety four, I believe it was, when I did my first national T V game with a thing called the Baseball Network. And the day after that I was on like a billion radio and T V stations and I was on a station in Philadelphia and it was an ex eagle and I wish I could remember to this day, I can't remember who it was. But he said, I gotta tell you something, Susan. I watched you last night. You know, I don't like you on FAN. I don't like women doing this. And then he stopped, he said, But I was watching that game with my ten year old daughter and she was watching and I just thought to myself, That's something she's never gonna know that she can't do because there you are. Mm. 
that that's the one story that has stayed with me. And if that if that has helped, and I know other other women have told me that, and there's actually a whole slew of them in the minor leagues now. There's you know four or five that I can mention off the top of my head, but I think there's seven or eight that are play-by-play announcers for A ball and Double A, and a couple of them are really good, really good. And that's you know that that's important to me. It it really is. I hope you know I'm I'm waiting for it. <laughs> you know I'm still the only one every day in a booth. But once you get to this level, you know you're up against the best. And it's and and I always say to young women, don't also think that every time you don't get something, it's because you're a woman. You're a woman. Once you start thinking that, you're you're, you're defeated yourself. Sometimes you're just not good enough. Well, I know that whether you're a male or a female. Yeah, I know Yankee fans in the era that I grew up could not imagine turning on a game or listening without Phil Rizzuto, Frank Messer, Bill White, and then, you know, Mel Allen. And now when Yankee fans listen to the radio, they are going to wonder, gee, are we ever going to be able to listen to a game without John Sterling and Susan Waldman? And I mean that. You guys are iconic. You're legends in New York. And I'm so happy that you were able to join me on this podcast because literally you're someone I could talk to for hours and hours and hours and we could laugh and share stories. I'll <laughs> well, have to do it again. We'll do, yeah, we'll do it once a month. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. Susan, thank you so much. Uh, you're a treasure and uh, I just have the utmost respect for you and I can't thank you enough for all your kind words this summer, but uh, most of all, just really love your work and respect you. Uh, thank you so much. And I hope it, does, it is in another couple of years before we talk again. What a great conversation with Susan Wallman. Man, I absolutely love that. I will definitely have her on again. That was that was great. And seriously, we could go on for hours and hours uh, with stories with uh, Susan Wallman. All right, that gets us to CrowdQuestion. If you go to CrowdQuestion.com, just sign up. It's easy to do. It takes a minute. And then you can send me a question, and maybe I'll answer them on my podcast. We start with Ernie. Do you think Justin Fields will not be in the Heisman running now? with the game against Michigan canceled? That's a great question. I I would hope not. I mean, 2020 and the pandemic and everything that has happened just in the world of sports, since we are talking about sports here, I I hope not, but it's a great question, and it probably will affect him. I mean, I probably will, and it's a shame because – He's a, he's a tremendous player, and he would have been right up there. That's a really good question, Ernie. We're, we're going to keep an eye on that one. All right, Jamie, should the Niners pick up Wentz if he becomes available? Hell no. Why would you want Carson Wentz based on what you've seen? Absolutely not. And, again, I don't know how Philadelphia is going to let Carson Wentz go, and that would be so much dead money against the cap. I mean, have you looked at his contract, Jamie? But, no, I don't think San Francisco should pick up Carson Wentz. I think both their quarterbacks that they currently have uh, are better than Carson Wentz. All right, Justin wants to know, is Mayweather, Logan Paul, an overall detriment to the sport of boxing? Isn't everything right now a detriment to boxing? I mean, seriously. I, I, I always, I've talked about this so often growing up as a kid watching Ali and Frazier and and all of those bouts. And again, I remember being on the school ground, all right, with Chris Russo and others, boys and girls, all right, in sixth grade, Split Rock School, we were all talking about the Ali-Frazier fight. I mean, everyone was talking about it. We were just kids, boys and girls. Then you think about the era of the 70s and how great Olympic boxing was. And you look at Sugar Ray Leonard, right? And you can go right on. You look at Hagler and Hearns and Duran. And, I mean, 
boxing is, and again, I'm really speaking to the younger generation now. You don't even know what boxing is. I mean, the what what boxing used to be. I mean, it was it was must see. Everyone was talking about Hagler and Hearns. Everyone used to talk about when Muhammad Ali fought Joe Frazier and then Foreman and Larry Holmes. And I mean, it was like number one on the list of sports. So I think everything right now is a detriment to the sport of boxing. All right, Tucker wants to know, what are your expectations for Jalen Hurts now that he is the quarterback of Philadelphia? Well, I don't think he can do any worse than Carson Wentz. I did my rant on this yesterday, all right? I, I, how could he be worse than Carson Wentz? I, I did a rant on this a couple of weeks ago that Carson Wentz was looking horribly. He needed to be taken off the field. You got to go with Jalen Hurts. I mean, if you're a football coach, you owe it to the team. And although I know that not all the players are on board, I mean, Fletcher Cox came right out. I mean, I couldn't believe what he said. He said Carson Wentz should still be the starting quarterback of this team. So my expectations are he's going to have some rough spots. He's a young quarterback. He's only had a little bit of experience. But, again, if you're Philadelphia, what do you have to lose? Nothing. Put Jalen Hurts in. Let's see what he can do. All right, Joe wants to know, is there anyone in sports you're always rooting for or against? You know who I'm rooting for? I always root for the players that are coming back from what look like career-ending injuries. And aren't we seeing it in Washington with Alex Smith? I mean, not only is he playing football and he has come back, he almost died, okay? His life was was in jeopardy for a little while. He almost lost his leg. He had multiple, many, 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 many surgeries. They were just hoping to save his leg and then hoping that he could walk and play with his kids. To see what he's doing on the field is incredible. So I root for Alex Smith. I'm rooting for Isaiah Thomas, who was had elevated himself to one of the best players in the NBA and was in the MVP balloting, all right? He was one of the MVPs when he was at the height of his career with Boston. And then he had the injury and, you know, his sister died in that just awful uh, accident. And he kept playing when he shouldn't have. And he's never been the same player since. So, yeah, I always root for the players that have those type of injuries because I like comeback stories. All right, Brandon wants to know, have you watched any college basketball since the season has started? Top 10 teams like Kansas look out of practice. It's like watching a pickup game at a 24-hour fitness. I've watched very, very little of college basketball. I, you know, I don't really enjoy watching college basketball until the tournament starts. I really don't. I think the level of play in college basketball has suffered greatly with the one-and-dones and the way the game is played. And again, I get into the tournament just like anybody else. I really don't enjoy watching college basketball that much during the regular season. Now, if it's a big, big game, you know, I, I do enjoy watching the rivalry with Duke and North Carolina, although without fans, it's just another game to me. So I, know I haven't really been watching a lot of college basketball. But again, assuming that we're going to have the tournament this year, and I think that we all are praying that, that we will, yeah, I'll watch it. All right, Phil wants to know, you brought up playing lacrosse your whole life. Why hasn't it gained popularity on the West Coast like it has back East? Well, first of all, 
you know, back East has the tradition and the history. And so it's going to take a time. I, since I've been in California and I moved out here in 87, the popularity of lacrosse uh, has gone up unbelievably. All right. A lot of the high schools are playing. A lot of youth leagues are playing. A lot of the colleges are playing, but you got to think the history of Johns Hopkins and Maryland and Syracuse. And, you know, I can go on and on with the, the even the smaller schools, Towson State, you know, I, the, the academies, you know, Navy always had a tremendous team. I think it will eventually get there, but it, it's they're playing catch up right now. But, you know, lacrosse, the pro lacrosse league has helped. And again, I see kids all the time, you know, in my neighborhood and, you know, driving around other neighborhoods in California. I see kids out with their lacrosse sticks all the time. So, again, I really do think that it's it, the popularity is gaining. Will it ever become like the East, especially the hotbeds of, you know, New York and Long Island, particularly Long Island and Baltimore? No, it won't. But it's getting there. Good questions. Go to crowdquestion.com. That's crowdquestion.com. Sign up. It's easy to do. Just leave me a question, and maybe I'll answer it right here on my podcast. It's time for Rant. 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 Hey, today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem They've got a fix for you. Their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. All right, I've got a little advice. Not that she needs it, but I'm going to give it anyway. The head of the NBA Players Association is Michelle Roberts. And Michelle, my advice to you is you need to have a conference call with all the members of your union because I think that there are many of your players that are absolutely tone deaf to what is going on in our country right now. Now, I've ranted this week a couple times on James Harden, all right? So I'm not going to rant on James Harden today. I've said about all I can say on Harden. But you got Kyrie Irving, another star, you know, with the Brooklyn Nets, coming out earlier this week and basically saying he's not going to talk to the media, even though it's part of his contract. Again, I think a lot of of the stars that we're hearing from, or maybe not even a lot, but some of the stars, and because of the way the news cycle works, we keep on hearing and reading about Harden, and we keep on reading about and, and we hear about, you know, Kyrie Irving, and we go on and on. And you know what it does for the league? It hurts the league. Again, you gotta be absolutely tone deaf to be making over $30 million a year, and you put out the notion that you don't give a damn about your sport because that's exactly what James Harden did, okay? When James Harden is in Atlanta at little baby's birthday party, instead of being with his team and his new coach, Steven Silas, and by the way, it is now, well, I said I was going to talk about Harden. Guess what? I lied. I can talk about whatever the hell I want. It's my rant, okay? He comes out and says that, or he hasn't come out, but speculation is now that he's upset that Steven Silas was named the head coach, that he wanted to Ron Liu. You know what, James? Shut up and play the freaking game. You're getting paid over $30 million a year. It's not your job to hire the coach. Let the franchise, all right, hire the coach. All right, I said I wasn't going to talk about Harden, and as I said, I lied. So I'm going to go back to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving's not going to talk to the media, all right, really? So the media now is going to get shut off from one of the stars of the game, 
Is that good for the league? No, it's not good for the league. You know what? You know what the stars of the NBA are doing right now, in my opinion? They're pushing fans away from their sport. Okay? In an era and a time where states are being shut down, people are losing their businesses, and we all are in the same boat. I don't have to explain to what's going on in the country. I mean, but you gotta be absolutely just tone deaf. You gotta be absolutely like living in, in a cave on Mars, you know, not to see what the hell is going on. And then you have some of the stars of a sport pushing people away. I, I'll tell you this, and I guarantee it. I guarantee that Adam Silver sitting in his office, he is ticked off when he sees what James Harden did. He's ticked off when he reads and hears what Kyrie Irving is not going to do with the media and so on and so forth. Because the one thing about Adam Silver, and I know this, all right? I've, I've been in the NBA for a long time. I know how things work. I've been in a lot of meetings. Adam Silver is a bright, bright guy. And the NBA is an incredible league. They're always looking into the future. Okay, And when problems arise, the NBA is right on top of it to figure out, number one, how to correct the problem and how to move forward so the problem doesn't exist anymore. The NBA's got a problem right now, in my opinion. And Michelle Roberts needs to talk to the members of her union and get everybody on the same page and go, hey, listen, you know what? If you're not happy, keep your thoughts to yourself. All right? The whole country is in peril right now. There are a lot of people that are suffering, a lot of people that are going through the most difficult times of their lives. They don't want to hear you complaining. They don't want to hear you bitching. You know, they don't want to hear about you not talking to the media. They don't want to read about the fact that you're making over $30 million a year and you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that. You don't want to play here and you don't want to play there. Hey, gentlemen, zip it. Shut up. You're hurting your sport. You're hurting your bottom line. Oh, and here's something else I may want to pass along. The more fans that stay away from the game means the less fans that watch, which means the ratings go down, which means the advertising dollars go down, which means the basketball revenue goes down. And when the basketball revenue goes down and you get a certain percentage of the revenue, guess what? Your contracts go down. You make less money. Stop being tone deaf. It's unbelievable what's going on. It really is. And that is my rant for today. That's my podcast for today. So great talking to Susan Waldman. Really enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, enjoy the weekend and stay safe, would you please? And as always, thanks for listening. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier.